1: I'm looking forward to today's chat with Matt Burns. Matt is a fascinating guy. He is the founder and CEO of a very cool company called Bento HR. So Bento HR is a digital transformation consultancy working at the intersection of strategy, technology, and people operations to accelerate value creation. Matt, that is a mouthful, but we're going to get into it. Firstly, thank you very much for joining me today. It took us
0: two and a half years to arrive at that mouthful. So I promise you it was much larger when we started (laughs)
1: Well, I like it. I like it indeed. Before we get into Bento HR itself, do you want to give us a quick background about you and what led up to this point of the formation of Bento HR? Happy to, Ben. And thanks for having me today. Appreciate it.
0: My background is not dissimilar to a lot of agency owners in this space. I spent 20 years in the corporate world. The last 15 of those were in HR. The last five of those were leading transformational projects, mergers and acquisitions, digital transformations, large corporate restructurings. And I got to an inflection point in my career where I asked myself, Do I want to continue to work for somebody else or do I want to work for myself? And there's lots of reasons as to why I made that decision. But in a nutshell, the flexibility of having my own firm, but also being able to work with and support who I wanted to support was a real deciding factor in that decision. And along the way, I've had a chance to meet some really cool people in this space, whether it's other agency owners, whether it's prospective clients, whether it's influencers
1: and content creators, it's been a really
0: fun ride along the way. And I'm super grateful for
1: the opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. I'm curious of all those sort of change management projects you did over those years, were any particularly more difficult or more enjoyable? Whenever you involve people in things,
0: they're always both difficult and enjoyable. So one that stands out for me was at my last corporate assignment, I joined an organization that was in its very, I'll call it nascent stage of its digital transformation. Everything was paper. So we had an HR team, about five starting out with everything was paper-based training was people flying across the country and doing face-to-face facilitation. Our technology stack consisted of a payroll module. It was very, very, very uh, basic. But I was brought on board in part to help accelerate the transformation of the HR function and then more broadly, the organization, as they had pretty ambitious growth objectives and had tried several times in the past to grow, but had kind of stalled because of human capital challenges. So I came in from the outside and that organization joined and set about building a strategy that was enabled through technology. And that led to a decision for us to go to the market. We ultimately procured five different modules from five different partners and implemented those within a course of 12 months. Now, Ben, this was back at a time when the decision around best of breed versus enterprise technology solutions was still very much debated. And most HR practitioners, most businesses in general, frankly, were buying enterprise solutions. So they would Mm -hmm. deal with one vendor, Workday, Oracle, ADP, whoever that might be, and then buying additional modules as their needs would evolve. That never made much sense to me. The way my mind works You can't do 12 things really, really well. So when I think about some of those vendors, I think about they have one really, really excellent module. And then they have a number of modules that are in various stages of development. And we were an organization that wasn't cash rich. We had constraints like every company did. So I had to operate this strategy within a budget. And when I went to the market and talked to different vendors, I focused primarily on sole source, best of breed partners individuals who did one thing really, really well. So I talked to an ATS organization that just built ATS platforms, and I talked to a LMS platform that just built LMS platforms. And in addition to them being much more specialized and therefore much more feature driven, they had, because of the nature of their solutions, built things like open APIs, which would connect more easily to large enterprise providers. And they focused on things like single sign-on out of necessity, because if they were a single solution in an ecosystem, they had to collaborate. Whereas at the time, those larger enterprise providers didn't offer open APIs. They weren't incentivized to collaborate with other people. So going through that exercise of talking to upwards of a hundred unique vendors and whittling it down to five and then choosing those solutions, implementing them. And then I ultimately hired a solutions architect in my organization to tie them all together on the back end. We essentially built our own enterprise solution at about a third of the cost of going to one of those larger providers and did it all in 12 months. It was a whirlwind, but ultimately we had to achieve the goal within that tight window because on the other end of it, we had an ERP implementation to support. So there was a very small window for HR to do its digitization around technology before IT's resources would be stretched elsewhere in the organization. So challenging because we had to ramp up an organization that traditionally had not embraced technology and quickly push five new solutions at them in addition to their day-to-day jobs. And the change management around that was particularly rough because we had to go through a very accelerated change path, but ultimately it was successful. We were able to build feedback loops. We were able to build trust in the process. We were able to have metrics and measures that sustained momentum and ultimately went, went very successfully. And then the following year, we were able to follow it up with a real emphasis on data.
1: Nice. And I suppose it's more than just the fact that you built an enterprise solution, but with a combination of different solutions at a third of the cost and a good timeframe, but the fact that probably was a better result at the end, right? Than-
0: Much better result. Yeah. When yeah. you have those single source solutions, their solutions are just ultimately better. They're yeah. doing one thing, Ben. So they're focusing in on building the best ATS, LMS, yeah. HRS platform they possibly can. And they're much more receptive to customer feedback at the time than those large enterprise providers were. So we were able to work with some vendors that, for example, we needed to help them translate languages. They didn't offer certain languages when we engaged with them originally. And we helped them actually translate their platforms and then did so for a reduction in pricing going forward. So like, we were creative with how we solve for problems. If we found a good solution that we liked and translation was the barrier, we could put some skin in the game with translation. They would ultimately benefit from our support in translating the platform. And we benefited from having locked-in pricing that was well below
1: market for the perpetuity of our contract. That's a very creative way to do it, actually.
0: Constraints Drive Innovation It's the opening (laughs) line of my (laughs) podcast, and I've worked in organizations that have always not had a lot of resources, or if they did, they held them back, and it's that phrase because it started from a very interesting place. I used to work for a CHRO in a very large fortune 10 company. And in that organization, he would sit me down pretty regularly and say, Matt, I have this big project for you to do. You need to get this done and this done and this done and this done. And I'm looking at myself going, I already am working 60 hours a week and I don't have additional resources and I can't possibly make this work. So I give him this look like what, like how, and then he'd look at me with a smile on his face and say, Matt, constraints drive innovation. You'll figure it out. And I always did. So that stuck with me. It's a, it's a function of mindset. It's a function of if you want to make things work, you can make things work. Yeah. And when you work in organizations in, for example, the retail sector or in manufacturing, where they're very, very, very overhead focused, you have to learn how to do more with less.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that feeds into the creation of Bento HR. What actually was the impetus and the moment when you decided to launch that? And then how did you go from zero to starting something? Yeah, it was actually
0: a really cool story. So I was speaking at the time at a number of conferences here in Canada, and as it would happen, I bumped into another speaker who owned a technology firm based out of Seattle, software development, data science, and they were evangelizing a vision for digital transformation, which felt a lot like the one that I was pushing, which was technology actually is a more human way of operating businesses. We shouldn't be scared of it. We should embrace it. And this is, of course, pre-pandemic. So as it would turn out, we were right in that regard that technology can be a strong enabler. And as we listened to each other's presentations, first he listened to my presentation, then he introduced himself, I listened to his presentation, we agreed that it would be best to have a drink. So we popped downstairs, had a conversation, that led to another conversation, that led to another conversation, and then led to me going down to Seattle. And we sat over a sushi lunch, true story. And we started talking about what a business could look like. And he operates an incubator and looks at building service-based businesses. And we were talking about how digital transformation is messy. It's complicated. As you mentioned, it's a mouthful for even us to explain in a sentence what we do, let alone all the activities that we would have to undertake in a digital transformation. And part of the challenge is that because every organization is unique, they're starting from a different place, they want to end a different place. So we don't have the luxury of saying product price. It's variable based on the client's needs and where they want to go. And as we attempted to simplify that, to make that digestible, we were looking at a menu and going, well, bento boxes actually do a really nice job of that. (laughs) It's a really easy way to get a lot of what you want, but not have to think too much about it. And I think about my mother who goes through sushi once a week, but she doesn't know the roles and she doesn't understand all of the Japanese. She just wants this and this and this and this on a plate put in front of her. It's very clear. It's very easy. And we thought that would be a good name for an organization and the rest is history.
1: I love it. I love it. So did you focus on any particular problems or solutions at first and then expanded or did you come up with some other offering?
0: Yeah, we started with a model that was very heavily weighted towards technology procurement, implementation and integration. The experience that I'd had with those organizations that I mentioned earlier put me in a good position to be able to offer some market intelligence around what solutions were available and to think about the problem different. And we started really with that emphasis and helped a number of clients think about their technology stacks, their architecture, how things blend together. We focused in on problems like organizations doing duplicate keying. Where their data was going how they were displaying it and actioning it a lot of cases just helping them take things from 80 percent complete to the rest of the way complete and just helping them get a bit more juice from the lemon as it were over the course of the pandemic of course we had to evolve organizations in a number of different contexts shifted so those aforementioned technology companies boosted their professional services components because they were trying to recoup some of the lost sales of software sales They introduced more of a technical services arm in a lot of those organizations, which kind of pushed out consultants like us. Additionally, organizations themselves shifted into more of a self-service mode. So I remember very early on the pandemic, kind of the spring of 2019, talking to a number of clients who would say things like, we love working with you, but we don't know if we're gonna survive the year. So we're gonna have to end our contract, pause our contract, and focus in on doing what we can do within our four walls. And that happened a few times. And we had to, again, pivot our organization to survive. It led us down a path actually into virtual reality for a moment. And we did that with a bit, which was kind of cool. Ultimately, Ben, we're focused in on activities now that are at the intersection of HR, so humans, and technology. And we're trying to bring those two things together in a way that makes sense for organizations. And whether it's virtual reality, whether it's technology procurement, whether it's big data, we're trying to right-size solutions to fit client needs.
1: Got it. It's funny. I was on LinkedIn earlier having a look there and someone had shared a, a Steve Jobs video. He's on the stage at one of their conferences, an Apple thing. and Not a heckler, but someone asked a polite question, sort of, Saying that he didn't really wasn't choosing the right technologies and things like this, and he really didn't get it. And why hadn't he chosen a particular, I think it was Java based language programming or something? But jobs as a response was we could, but it's only going to be a small part of the bigger picture. And really, the better way to do things is to look at the end issue around our customer service, the customer needs, or in this case, as we're talking about, the HR issues, and then work back to find the right technology partner to enact that. It sounds like that was sort of the direction you were headed.
0: Yeah, I'm not a technologist in the traditional sense. I don't write code, Ben. I'm not a big data scientist. My partner in Seattle has those technical skills. I'm an integrator. I'm a translator. I help organizations identify the needs. I help them facilitate solutions to achieve those needs. And then when we have technical requirements, I throw them over the fence to my partner who actually actions them in terms of the detailed integrations and implementations. And you need both. You need to have deep technical expertise to be able to help support some of these tougher decisions, but you also need people to help translate and integrate because ultimately end users don't need to have the deep level of knowledge that technologists need to acquire. They need to be able to have knowledge around application and use. And as we've discussed kind of previously, change management is 80% of any of these digital transformations. We talk about digital transformations and you think, oh, it's a big tech project. It's almost entirely people. The technologies, for the most part, they are what they are. And they work the way they're intended to work. It's how do the people in the organization ingest them? How do they wrap their processes and change the ways they're working around them? And how do they maximize the benefits that they can achieve from them? And the organizations that we talk to often start from a place of, well, we have all the technology. Well, we have all the data. But the question I often ask is, what are you doing with it? And are you feeling you're getting the most amount of return on that investment? Absolutely.
1: Countless companies around the world and countless people doing roles where they're data entry or entering data in and then wondering what happens to it and never see it again. Absolutely. And more than once in in corporate roles in the, in an HR sense, I've I've been responsible for monthly reports and then mm. We stopped doing it for one month. No one even noticed. So no. I mean, yeah. I call
0: that, I call that yeah. KPI whack-a-mole, Ben.
1: So oh, what is it? Oh, whack-a-mole. K- yeah.
0: KPA whack-a-mole. I used to run analytics for a large organization, multinational company, same thing as you're talking about, $20 billion a year business, and ran their monthly report, more than a hundred unique measures. It would go out the door. Ben, I spent 95% of my time managing politics. Because yeah. in this organization, There was a very strong accountability model. And if your results were underperforming two months in a row, there was progressive disciplinary action as a consequence of that, whether it was turnover or engagement or regrettable attrition, whatever that might be. We had measures for it. We managed against it. And if there was a problem, we would intervene, believing at the time that it was... We take this seriously. So if we're going to discipline managers for having dropped engagement three times in a row, that's our way of showing that this is important to us. What we didn't think about was the broader social and psychological consequences, which is that when you introduce accountability... Some people will, of course, take it seriously, make personal changes, and do things differently. And some people will find every possible way to work around the accountability model. Mm -hmm. We'll try and cheat the system. There's integrity issues. And there's a lot of of finger pointing. So every month I put out the report, I would just wait for the emails to flood in, being like, this report's out of date. This information is not accurate. How dare you? And rather than people just taking responsibility for the numbers and saying, thank you, we're going to do something with this. There was so much energy tied up in finger pointing and blaming that I ultimately took that lesson from that organization. And When I brought it to my last corporate assignment, we introduced a no disciplinary policy for any HR metrics. We simply said they're a starting point for a conversation around coaching and performance management. And we will take corrective action if there's an integrity issue. So if you cheat your numbers, if you treat your employees inappropriately based on the numbers, then we will take corrective action based on that. If you don't participate in the action planning process to resolve these problems, we'll deal with that. But we're not gonna punish you based on the numbers because a lot of these numbers have extraneous factors. Like turnover has Hmm. something to do with the internal part of the organization, But it also has to do with the economy, has to do with other factors that have nothing to do with the managers involved. So by taking away the stigma around corrective action, wouldn't you know it? We built tighter relationships with our line managers. They actually came to us for help. We were no longer the police arm of the organization, but we were rather true business consultants.
1: I went through something similar myself, but I discovered early on before we went to that kind of model, I found this manager who realized that, let's say the employee survey would be held on the 14th. He would hold a company-wide barbecue or a divisional-wide of barbecue. You know, okay, kind of, I just, just love the creativity at least. I
0: had a manager once that would say, hey, if we achieve this result, I'll buy you all pizza. <laughs> so it's even more explicit. It's yeah. like, I get the intention behind yeah, it, yeah. but there's one thing to say, I'll buy you all pizza to increase participation. It's a very different thing to say, I'm going to give you a gift to give me a result. That's Bradley,
1: And then once the results are in, you're all back to the salt mines. Totally. In terms of when you were forming up into HR, how did you actually get clients at that stage? I'm always fascinated by that, going from nothing to let's get some business in the door. Yeah, it's not easy.
0: One thing I learned really early on was that the moment I became a consultant, all of my corporate friends were now like suddenly very leery of phone calls from <laughs> me. It was it was interesting because when I was a corporate employee, I was on LinkedIn all the time, had a big network, was regularly taking calls from people and people wanted to chat and take my, you know, take my calls and have time and have virtual coffees. But when I became a consultant, it's like, I don't want you to try and sell me. So that was one lesson I learned very early on. The honest answer, Ben, is it's kind of trial and error. And every organization's a little bit different. For us, what works really, really well is occasionally I'll say a smart thing and we'll put that smart thing into the universe, whether it's speaking at a conference, whether it's writing an article, whether it is hosting a focus group, I'll say something that is reasonably intelligent. People will say, I want to hear more of that. It begins a conversation that in some cases leads to business. And a really effective way that we found more recently. is just going back to our core network of people and just reintroducing. I mean, I mentioned before, we've pivoted so many times during the last three to four years, that it was important for us to go back to our network, our trusted network of advisors and friends and colleagues and business partners and say, this is what we're doing now. And that referral network ultimately becomes really important when you're just getting things off the ground once you have momentum momentum begets more momentum but getting things from zero to a cash flow positive business is a challenge for any service-based organization
1: absolutely and the reconnecting side of things with the pivots and then getting in touch with that just sending people messages is it meetings what was that Yeah, it's a combination. So Hmm. it depends on the
0: proximity to the inner circle. So I have some friends who I'm like, I want to talk to you about a sales pitch that I have, and I need your direct feedback. They're not going to buy anything, but they're willing to give me straight up feedback from a consumer's perspective. So I, I value that opinion. Other individuals, it was conversation around, hey, we're trying a new idea here and some new thinking at Bento HR. We'd love to have your feedback in a focus group format. So we'd love to test some ideas with a broader group and we want to make a big tent event and we'd love you to come in and just share your feedback around that. And then in other cases, we would ask explicitly for introductions to people through other people. The combination of those three things, now whether that was a LinkedIn direct message, whether it was an email campaign, whether it was a phone call that I made, more often than not, LinkedIn's my preferred platform. It's where I have the majority of my business connections. It's where I spend the majority of my time when I'm not working. So that for me is often the most fruitful. We've tried email in the past. It hasn't entirely been effective. The conversion rates, the effort that we expend for the return that we get isn't often proportionate. It's good at building awareness for us, but we're selling services. And one thing I've learned the hard way through this business is that it's really hard to differentiate services. Service-based businesses, it's relationships. It's relationships and trust. And price sensitivity goes out the window. It's relationships. So we have to focus in on that me sending out thousands and thousands of cold emails to people great for building awareness, but the conversions often in the single digits. And I don't want to necessarily have a brand for a company that is spamming people all the time. I would rather have a brand of an organization where it's like, our services are so scarce that you need to come and find us. Now that isn't always the case. We have to go out and find people in our business, but generally speaking, our network has been pretty fruitful.
1: And people may think about going and giving speeches and talks, podcasts, whatever it may be. Some of those things can take a lot of time, especially events, physical events. That's that's a couple of days gone. What's Mm -hmm. your thoughts on that? Either taking stands, so actually paying for stuff, or giving speeches at these things? We've made a lot of mistakes in this process. So I've planned events and organized
0: them myself. I've attended events as a speaker. I've attended events as a having booths. I think my first recommendation for those people who are considering events is to reach out to your network and establish what is available and what is practical. So there's an event every year that's hosted in the United States that is probably the largest HR technology event, if not the second largest. And really sold as a business development opportunity, but the reality is it's not. Mm. It's a place that you go to if you want to get funding. It's a place if you want to go to if you want to build channel partnerships all the big players are present, but the trade show floor has very little in the way of customers. We spent a lot of money, a lot of time, as you mentioned, a lot of resources to go down to find that out. We would have probably been better served if we'd asked some questions beforehand, rather than getting caught up in the marketing of this event itself. The events where we had the most amount of success are the ones where we've been able to have a presence on the stage, at least in some way, shape or form, whether it's a panel or a keynote and to have a visible presence that is also on the trade show. So people will see us speak, see me speak, and then come by the booth, we get to have a conversation.
1: One or the other. So a stand on its own, bit of a waste, but if you can get the <sighs> speaking slot, it builds both profiles, right?
0: Yeah, stand on its own. is like, I spent a lot of years in retail and where you have your booth is so important. It's yeah, why they yeah. charge different prices. So events that we've had the most success, we were in a highly visible area and we were highly visible insofar as talking on stage. The events where we've had the least amount of success, we were tucked away in a corner, and trying to sing for our supper and hoping that people would come by the booth and maybe be able to engage them in a conversation. But it feels more like somebody trying to sell you a credit card in an airport and mm-hmm. less like actually having a real conversation with somebody. So that's for us that, that's worked really well. We also piloted some digital events. So we did that in the pandemic. And as I alluded to earlier, we actually put on a three day virtual reality conference yeah, with that. 60 speakers in VR headsets and 400 attendees in VR headsets and 400 nice. attendees attending live stream.
1: Awesome, exhausting. Exhausting, uh, I, I did one. Want- Similar, and I I know (laughs) it's exhausting. (laughs) Yeah, it took us about eight
0: months of -hmm. essentially 15 to 16 hour days to put that together. I mentioned earlier about reaching out to your network for help. We tried. Nobody had done it before. So when we talked to Microsoft and Meta and Verizon and big companies, they were more than happy to be involved, but nobody had put on a a virtual reality conference for three consecutive days with 800 attendees in it. Nobody had tried to onboard 60 speakers in VR headsets and have them present keynotes and panels and fireside chats. So we did that. It was an incredible experience. We learned a ton along the process. And one of the rewarding things that we've heard since then is we have people come back to us two years later and say, hey, since that conference, we went ahead and we bought 500 virtual reality headsets of our company. We've wow. we've expanded this platform and in this technology as a tool for coaching or for performance management or for recruitment. We were able to introduce people to a new way of thinking at a time when people needed new ways to think. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I'm curious with the, the for instance, the roundtables and you getting feedback on offers yeah. and things like that. Were there any examples of where you adjusted your offering as a result of that feedback? Because for me, for any business, I think the offering is just crucial. You can then market it and do all sorts of fancy things, put a bow on it. But unless the offer is not good, it's very hard to sell something. So, what were your findings? In our case, really hard to define it. As you mentioned, it's a bit opaque.
0: It's a bit hard to pin down. Because again, digital transformation is such a nebulous term. For some people, it means automation. For some people, it means AI. For some people, it means technology procurement or virtual reality or augmented reality. So I think you're spot on. I think we start from a position and it usually starts from a position of like thought leadership where I'll assert an opinion. So right now I'm geeking out on a term called employee lifetime value. Most people who are in marketing understand that customer lifetime value. The equivalent is employee lifetime value. We're currently building a, a model that establishes measures and metrics through an employee's life cycle. And it's simply, it's not meant to solve the problem, but it's meant to create alignment around the problem we're actually trying to solve. Because in digital transformation, it's not just the definitions that we work through. We're trying to get clear with the client on The client themselves is trying to get clear on what they're looking for. And when we sit down and talk to seven or eight business executives and ask them what they're trying to achieve, we get seven or eight different answers. So by having a term like employee lifetime value, we can at least center the conversation around some key inflection points and then identify activities that we believe can intervene at those inflection points and ultimately drive a conversation around services and ROI and things of that nature. We are consistently and constantly evolving our offers based on client feedback and trying to pair our thinking, what the market actually wants. So when we start with an idea, we'll put it into a focus group format. We'll talk to 500 people. We'll have conversations. We'll evolve the thinking. We'll have them ask good questions. And based on that, we'll create FAQs and refine language and refine offers and create better assets. And that's ultimately been the most fruitful for us. I often have envy for people who sell products because product selling is just easy. (laughs) Like it's just like (laughs) buy it or don't buy it. And I worked in retail for so many years and it's like, you buy in big quantities, you sell it for a margin, voila, it's over. But when you're selling services, it's just so much more nuanced. So you have to stay on top of your offers. You have to have a consistent feedback flow if you're going to be able to stay relevant.
1: I'm just thinking, was it City Slickers, the movie with Billy Crystal? And he starts off as an aggrieved basketball referee. Is that right? Or something like that? No, but there's one where he's got a job and he's Literally selling air. He's selling advertising space on radios. And so he, he thinks, What am I doing? I'm selling air. So yeah. the clarity they offer is just so crucial. You mentioned thought leadership, and I know you do a lot of that. Can you tell me about the Bento HR 2022 work trends? What is that? Because it looks really interesting. Yeah, thanks. I'm very lucky in that every Christmas time, I'll
0: take about two weeks off. Business kind of shuts down. Most of our clients aren't interested in us being around, and it's not a good time for us to build business. And for an agency owner, for those who are listening, who have agencies, you understand that time off is a, is a scarce event. <laughs> so I take the full advantage of that two weeks, but I'm also always on in the sense that I'm always thinking about my business and thinking yep, about yep. what happened over the previous year and how I want to show up in, in the coming year. Yeah, And we pride ourselves as an organization on trying to be ahead of the curve. We build the bridge to the future that our clients can walk on. So for us, talking about trends is as much about helping the people in our network understand where things are going so that they can reverse engineer to where they are and ultimately think about the path between the two. Whether it's virtual reality, whether it's the rise of big data, I talk a lot about the blending of marketing and HR. There's concepts that I think are going to become increasingly relevant. And as it wasn't too long ago that I was a corporate employee just head buried in a bunch of work and a bunch of emails and a bunch of meetings and the ability to have people around me, just give me some visibility to what's going on outside the four walls of the company. I found so valuable. So I try and create content that I would have found valuable sitting in that CHRO spot.
1: Like it. Like it. So man, we've covered a lot of ground here, but I'm sure people would love to learn more about you and about Bento HR. HR. So what should they do next?
0: Yeah. The easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. You can search Matt in VR or Matt Burns. You'll see my big grinning face and my beard on the the platform. Check me out there. My account has been configured to accept direct messages from anybody. So please send me a message. You can also search us at bentohr.com. We're currently in a website renewal right now and trying to flush that out. Ben, one thing I'm sure you can relate to is we've oscillated between too much detail, cutting back on the detail. We're now kind of swinging the pendulum back to having some more detail. So we're currently doing some work on that, but check that out as well. easy spot to find me, Matt, at bentohr.com, as well as my email.
1: Brilliant. All right. So if you're listening to this on the go, we'll have those links in the show notes. But Matt, brilliant work. Love what you've done so far. And it sounds like what you're doing is going to be even more amazing. So thank you very much for sharing your insights and your time today. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it.